welcome to Careful Consideration of Our Common Concerns. I'm Dr. Ted Noel. And it's time to begin. But as always, we start with a couple of news items of interest. The first item is one that I got from a newsletter. And that is from ZDNet. It's a computer and tech newsletter that comes pretty much every day in my mailbox. And the headline on it says that the author had queried Google's chat AI, which is called The Bard, after Shakespeare. And the headline goes on to say that Bard says we need to limit Google's power. You could not make that up. A Google product says you got to shut Google down a bit on what they're doing. Go figure. Another item of particularly importance, and I will include the link in the notes that accompany this podcast, is a YouTube uh, interview of Vivek Ramaswamy by John Stossel. It's close to an hour long, but frankly, probably worth the listen. Ramaswamy is 38 years old, which means he's barely old enough to be president. But the fact is, the guy is brilliant. He is a very careful, thoughtful, multimillionaire business creator. He has a law degree, among other things, and is highly principled. Now, he would be a wrecking ball in D.C., much the same as Donald Trump, but he would be there without the orange man bad and without the just bull-in-a-china-shop approach. Trump got a lot done, and if he's the candidate, yes, I will vote for him. At the same time, he's got a lot of baggage. We have to ask if he's dying the death of a thousand cuts, on and on, at which point I fall back on that great philosopher Yogi Berra. Predictions are difficult, especially about the future. And all of what is yet to come is about the future. So all I can say is here's the things that make life interesting and potentially more interesting. If Ramaswamy did manage to get nominated and elected, boy, oh boy, would that be very interesting. Because the guy has a wonderful mind. He has business knowledge. He is highly principled. He's not shoot from the hip. And... You know, his interview is worth watching or listening, as your choice may be. I will admit I basically just listened to it while I was uh, doing other tasks that didn't require a whole lot of thought. With that all said and done, remember, I don't do this to make any money. I do this for the message. If you like it, you know, like it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it, whatever it is that the platform you're on uh allows you to do so that the next time I get something out, you'll be able to get to it right away. And, you know, the more people who hear the message, the better things get. Now, my main subject is don't ever trust the government. And you already knew that. The government is horrible. It serves itself. Our Constitution was written to protect us from the government, and instead we are now having to find ways to protect ourselves from the government. Uh, I happen to be a gun nut. I shoot a lot. I reload ammunition, and I customize some guns. 
And we now have a director in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives who has promulgated a brace rule which basically says if you have a short-barreled anything, you're a lawbreaker and we're going to come get you. And the news today was uh, we're going to try to outlaw ammunition. So, you know, they are out for themselves. That may be why the IRS bought a billion rounds of ammunition. Why does the IRS need any ammo? I don't know. They really don't need any. They could just have the FBI come serve their arrest warrants and be done with it. But we should never trust the government. And let's start in my theater, which is medicine. I only spent 36 years in it, so you can't say I know very much about it. I was in a highly science-dependent specialty, anesthesiology and critical care medicine. So as a result, I know how to read scientific literature. And we knew, for example, from the earliest days that masks were of no benefit to you. They couldn't stop anything. We even had papers from 2014 that showed it couldn't. But what happened? We had Lord Fauci up there telling us, oh, we needed to have masks. And it was, no, we didn't. They weren't any benefit. And then he said, yes, they are. And back and forth. You couldn't pin him down because he didn't know what he thought from one day to the next. As long as it served his purpose of having you fall in line to do whatever he and his buddies would want you to do, that's all that mattered. And remember that he had huge financial interests. He had developed a drug called remdesivir, which was supposedly going to help with uh, with uh, Ebola, and it turned out it had no effect on Ebola. Well, now he's got all of this going. He's got patent. There's royalties on remdesivir, so when COVID comes around, Suddenly, remdesivir is now going to be the miracle drug for COVID patients, and the reason is that it pours money into Fauci's pocket. And we don't know how much. He refuses to tell us how much, but count on it. It's more than most of us make in a year. In any case, uh, so he couldn't allow us to use hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin or ivermectin or any of the other methods that helped prevent and treat early COVID. We now know, for example, that the case fatality rate for COVID was about 0.3%. That is not materially different from the case fatality rate for influenza. Instead, He whipped up a frenzy which led governor after governor to shut states down to somehow prevent us from getting the bug. And guess what? In New York, they shut people down. But no, they insisted that COVID patients had to go back to nursing homes to recover, which meant thousands of nursing home patients got it and died. On top of that, we found that 60% of all of the cases of COVID in New York came from people who were deemed non-essential, who were locked down, and got it from family members. Yep, you lock people in a closed place, and you are going to get an airborne disease. Because, here's the deal, airborne diseases don't survive outdoors. Why? Two things, infinite dilution and sunlight. They both kill airborne diseases really, really quick. But if you lock people in a closed space with no sunlight, the air gets recirculated, guess what? You are concentrating airborne viruses and making people sick. But Lord Fauci, government, NIH, this is what we had to do. 
lockdowns. And then when the vaccine came out, count on it, he got some money out of that too. And his buddies got some money out of it. And so immediately this became the rule. Remember what I said, never trust anything the government says. So then this went to the FDA. And what did the Federal Delay Administration do? Well, for drugs that actually help people, they can spend years getting around to even look at them. And, for example, in 07, Merck had a drug called Arcoxia that they submitted. It was a COX-2 inhibitor for arthritis. It turns out that it has a safety profile much the same as Celebrex, which is a COX-2 inhibitor on the market. And the FDA looked at it and said, we don't need another COX-2. You need a drug that, quote, must meet an unmet need. Now, there is nothing in federal law that allows them to say that. But because the drug companies have to go to the FDA for approval, Merck ate the billions of dollars because if they didn't and they fought the FDA and won, their next drug would be held up in limbo forever. The FDA would never look at another drug Merck made. So Merck made the judgment to eat the loss and go on about their business. Don't fight City Hall. And the FDA has become an absolute fortress for government bureaucrats. And what's happened, and we've had to pry this data out of the FDA, is that the FDA did not follow any of its rules with regard to the COVID vaccines. None of them. You heard me. No rules. First of all, the mechanism, the mRNA mechanism for the COVID vaccine is, in fact, a new mechanism when applied to vaccines. There's no track record. This would mean that the FDA must establish some basic safety profile. Even if you didn't do a full long-term safety profile, you would do a three-month, maybe a six-month, and you would do proper science on it. But no, Pfizer didn't do proper science. They submitted something that had numbers in it, declared it to be safe, and the FDA, their buddies, said, yes, let's shove it out the door under an emergency use authorization. It didn't meet any of the basic safety standards. None whatever. And when you look at the actual studies that were used, those didn't meet even the most basic standards for good scientific work. They were horrible. So we end up with a huge, as the expression in the military goes, foobar. And it was all hidden from the public. We have dug it out, and that evidence is available, and I would suggest you go to the substacks for Pierre Corey, K-O-R-Y, for Peter McCullough, and his substack is called Courageous Discourse, for Paul Alexander, M.D., and for Steve Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H. All of these guys have been doing yeoman work chasing down the lies that were told to get these out, because as you recall, Pfizer made on the order of $40 billion on the COVID vaccine. That's with a B. And that kind of money is a real enticement to malfeasance. 
but the FDA jumped on board. Now, would we be better or worse off without the FDA? We'd be worse off with it. Because, frankly, the FDA does nothing of value. Its inspections for purity are political at best. You know, they're the ones who said the baby food stuff was bad when, in fact, it probably wasn't. We would be far better off with private market action here, where you have people who serve as information clearinghouses and patients are allowed to make choices. But no, you couldn't allow that. Peter McCullough, who's one of the most award-winning cardiologists alive, editor of two highly regarded internal medicine journals, had his specialty certification threatened. The American Board of Internal Medicine tried to ban to re to revoke it, to take it away from him. And they tried to push the state of Texas to get rid of his license. He's fortunate. He survived. He was well enough known that they kind of went, man, we can't quite do that. We can't get away with it. But a number of just ordinary Joe doctors lost their licenses, lost their employments. Give you an example. When I went to see my family doc for something else, and I asked him about ivermectin for COVID. He just looked at me and said, don't ask me that. The bottom line was he was in line for an administrative medicine position at the hospital system I used to work in. And if he said anything good about ivermectin, he probably would lose that. Why? Because the hospital is in bed with Medicare, which is in bed with the drug companies and the FDA and everybody else. And you say anything to mess up that cozy little arrangement and they are going to go nuts. So you simply can't do that. Now let's change gears and go to global warming. That really hasn't been a big deal until lately. It's, oh, the military wants to go to an all-electric vehicle system. Guess what? There's no possibility that can work because you don't have chargers out on the front lines of battlefields. And, uh, you know, you take a tank and say, we're going to charge it up. It's going to take overnight to charge it, and it sits there as a target. Uh, you know, these are stupid things the military is doing. And how are you going to have a jet that's electric? It does not work. You simply can't have batteries that are big enough. There is nothing that has the appropriate energy density and form like hydrocarbon fuels. So, all that said, global warming. You will find all kinds of people screaming about it's this tragedy. Well, remember that in 2012, our climate guru from New York, Alexandria Airhead Cortez, or whatever her name is, AOC, declared that all life on Earth would end in 10 years or 12 years. Well, 12 years would be next year, and it doesn't look like life's having any problems at all. Life's doing quite well, thank you. And are we having a little warming? Yeah, there's a little bit. But it's interesting that if you go to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration website, you will find paleoclimate data before 2,000 years ago. And the first graphic on it is a classic case of figures don't lie, but liars can figure. And it talks about paleoclimate from 10,000 BC up till now. So it's 12,000 years more or less. 
And if you look at the graphic, it shows a very warm climate between 10,000 and about 1,000. And notes that is the agricultural centuries. And if you are a student of the Bible at all, the warmest part of it comes, roughly speaking, after the flood. And that's warmer than today, or at least as warm as today. And you go, wait a minute, were we dumping CO2 into the atmosphere? No, uh, that's interesting. And then you have all of these historical decades where temperature is declining, declining, declining. You have the medieval warm period in the 12, 13, 1400s, and it keeps going down until what's known as the Little Ice Age in about 1800 to 1900. Things got cold. As I recall, there was a steamship named the Titanic ran into something cold in the North Atlantic in 1912. But since then, they're showing the graphic of the temperature rising. But it's interesting in how they lie to us. The size of the graph for the last hundred years is the same size as the graph for 9,000 years. It may be that the data is accurate, but the data has been presented in a way that is a lie. If I go down to the next graphic, actually the third graphic, it talks about what's called the early Eocene period. And they're using the standard ages of 53 to 49 million years ago. We won't debate biblical chronology with this. But the fact is they're looking at a period where there is data for carbon dioxide, and it turns out the carbon dioxide levels were between 1,150 and 2,500 parts per million. Our current is around 400. So this is between three and six times as much carbon dioxide. That's a bunch. And they have some data that show what look like global temperatures. And it turns out that at the higher latitudes, like what's now northern Canada or Alaska and so on, you had warm weather plants and animals. And you say, wait a minute, what's the deal here? Is global warming that bad? Answer is no. Global warming just changes where good life can take place. So, you know, you may move to a higher elevation somewhere. You may move down to a higher latitude. And guess what? Martha's Vineyard might be underwater. But it doesn't really matter. This is what has happened throughout history. And if we look at some of the archaeologic findings, we know, for example, that during the Ice Age, there were multiple villages in the Bering Land Bridge at what is now around 500 feet below sea level. There was a broad plain where people could walk from Asia to North America. We have the same finding in the Black Sea, two to 500 feet down, villages. Why? Because during the Ice Age, the ocean level, the sea level, was 500 feet lower. And it wasn't until the ice melted and brought it up that we have something that resembles our current geography. Which raises another question. If we are to look at our actual measurements of sea level, because they've been saying it's catastrophic, we're going to drown Miami, whatever. There is a tide gauge in New York Harbor, which has been there for a couple hundred years. And it indicates a sea level rise at one-tenth of one inch per decade. That's one inch per century. That ain't much. 
And because of some data from Sydney Harbor in Australia, we have to ask a second question. You see, it seems that the Sydney Harbor tide gauges have shown no change since the Botany Bay colony. That's right, no change. So what's going on? Is New York sinking slightly? It's called subsidence. It's entirely possible that it has a little bit of subsidence. If you look at the rock in all of the eastern United States, the predominant form is sedimentary rock. It's not as hard as the igneous rock from volcanoes that you see along in the western United States where there are volcanoes or, you know, any place where there are. That rock is harder, but the sedimentary rock may have issues of subsidence, water intrusion, it leaches it out, and that one-tenth of an inch per decade might represent the idea, not that ocean level is rising, but that New York is sinking just a smidgen. Now, let's look again at the data for global warming. Many will say, well, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and they will give you surface temperature readings. The problem they've got with surface temperature readings is that many of the surface temperature readings are taken in what are known as heat islands. Phoenix, Arizona is a famous heat island. As most of people who live in Phoenix or have passed through there in the summertime know, that place is bloody hot. And the basic idea is that you have miles and miles of concrete in a desert, and you have air conditioning running to make it possible, and the air conditioning creates more heat net. It moves heat outside and cold in, and ultimately you create extra heat. Well, if you're measuring heat there, that's not global warming, that's a local hot spot. So you have to measure temperature using satellites. And Dr. Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville is the chief cook and bottle washer on that project for NASA. And put bluntly, there is a lot that doesn't make sense. And he points out, using a very detailed attempt to reconcile satellite observations of the climate system with the behavior of climate models, that, quote, and I will read you a paragraph plus, the resulting picture that emerges is of an insensitive climate system dominated by negative feedback. That's how your body works. When something gets up too high, your body pushes it back down. That's called negative feedback. And it appears that the reason why most climate models are instead very sensitive is due to the illusion of a sensitive climate system that can arise when one is not careful about the physical interpretation of how clouds operate in terms of cause and effect. That's forcing and feedback. And then he goes on to talk about how they're using the model to explain the satellites instead of the satellites to test the model. Our climate researchers, most of them, are ideologues, and they refuse to consider that the climate models themselves are wrong because they all talk about CO2 and they forget what the most potent greenhouse gas is, and that's water. Water vapor is the most potent greenhouse gas, far more potent than carbon dioxide. And here's the thing. Suppose carbon dioxide warms the surface a little bit. Well, that means that you're going to evaporate some more water from the oceans. 
That's going to make more clouds. And more clouds is going to reflect sunlight away. That's called raising the albedo of the Earth. And when you do that, you reduce the effect of the carbon dioxide in trapping heat. In short, you've got a mechanism that acts like the thermostat in your house. Let's say you set the air conditioning at 74 degrees. It's summertime in Florida, so the AC cranks up, and it cools my house down to 74 degrees, and then shuts off. The house starts to warm back up, and it gets up somewhere around 75 degrees, and the AC kicks back on, takes it back down to 74. And what happens is that we find that the temperature fluctuates between 74 and 75. It warms and cools. It warms and cools. And it's entirely possible that clouds are a huge part of a thermostat that keeps the Earth from getting too warm. Remember what we said that when we had the the Eocene, the Earth was warmer, unquestionably. But all that did was move where you could live. It didn't change the fact that you could live. It just said... Go someplace else, and the gradually, you know, temperature was gradually changing, and so that's that. And remember, Leif Erikson hit a big island in his exploration, and he called it Greenland. Why? Because it was green. It's not green now, although some is recovering. Guess what? Temperature warms and cools. Climate warms and cools. We have a system that maintains life on Earth quite well, and God designed it. But what you've got now is a government which is so intoxicated by power that they're trying to get rid of your gas stoves. Did you forget all that CO2 that they might release? No, I thought about it. It needs to be there because it makes plants more able to live in dry climates. Oh yes, there are lots of people who barely get by. You raise the CO2 a bit, and those people are suddenly going to be able to have farms with less water and be more prosperous. You get the picture. The government is lying to us. It has been lying to us for a long time. It is serving its own purposes. So whenever you hear that anybody from the government says anything other than the sky is blue, take it with a real grain of salt, because there's a very high possibility maybe a probability, that they are saying it in a way that's designed to get you to agree with them, to not question them, so they can increase their power and make you subject to them. Welcome to Careful Consideration of Our Common Concerns. I'm Dr. Ted Noel.